admit it, one time or another, maybe even now, you've wondered what it would be like to be your own boss, to start your own business. You've identified a need, a void, and a likely solution that you think could make countless lives just a little bit better. If you're wondering whether or not to take that risky but potentially rewarding step, you have to meet John Richards, this week's Game Face exec and a mentor whose candid guidance has saved many entrepreneurs untold pain while helping them realize unimaginable opportunities. So I'm joined today by John Richards, and John Richards is a man who can be described in four distinct ways. He's been called a great entrepreneur, he's an educator, he's an advisor, and he's also an investor. So John, thanks for joining me on Game Face Execs, and it's a real privilege to spend some minutes with you here today. Thank you, Rob, and thanks for all you're doing for the ecosystem. Well, thank you. Uh, John, in that description of you, I, I just mentioned four ways that people have referred to you as an entrepreneur, an advisor, an educator, and an investor. And I'm curious, um, if you had to pick one of those, if you had to put one on a gravestone, <laughs> which one do you think really best describes John Richards? Oh, I, I think probably um, in, the, in the area of education and mentorship is the one that I've had the most fulfillment from. Hmm. And um, when you talk about fulfillment, uh, can you just describe for me what, what that means to you? Well, right before uh, we started this podcast, I had another uh, Zoom uh, event, and it was with, um, from the mid-2000s, a student that I mentored at Brigham Young University, and he has gone on in the last 15 years to build a very sizable, successful company, and he, he and I just had a great catch-up talk, and all that he's doing. It's just so rewarding to see what he's done and gone on to do. Hmm. He shared some principles and given a little bit of mentorship in his, you know, formative years, but he kind of discouraged me a little bit because he told me he just turned 40. So <laughs> that made me feel really old. So how long have you been advising him? Um, so I is probably from the mid 2000s. Um, wow. So I get from the thousands and thousands of students at the university level that I've mentored and then even people out in the community, um, I'll sometimes get emails or communications from people I haven't heard from from eight or 10 years ago saying, do you know what's happened to me? And they tell me their success story and they said it all started when they got this principle or that help and other ones yeah. I have constant communication with and different things. It's just such a fulfilling, rewarding thing. So you ask, that's the, you know, as far as, Fulfilling. Just like one of the most fun things I've ever done in life was coach my daughter's basketball team for seven straight <laughs> years. And all of those young ladies are now married and with children. And uh, that was one of the most rewarding things I've ever done. It was just coaching a youth basketball team. Wow. <laughs> coaching girls basketball. I never had daughters. I have, I have three sons who are all grown now. Uh, but one of my favorite pieces that was ever written by a sports columnist was Rick Riley's piece about coaching girls basketball. Did you ever read that one? No, I didn't. I yeah, didn't. I, have to, I have to find that one for you and get that to you. It's, it, was, uh, it was really fun. I found that girls actually listen and follow direction. When you coach youth boys basketball, it's run and gun the whole time. Oh, well, now speaking, going back to your role as an advisor, you have been a very successful business person for many, many years. And 
Uh, it's a unique personality that decides to step away from building businesses and advise and mentor other people to go that same route and teach them to do that. So what is it about your nature, your personality that, that caused you to step away from, and I know you're still involved in businesses, mm -hmm. don't get me wrong, but mm -hmm. you spent a lot of time helping people do what you did. There, there are so many that just don't have, you know, they don't have the stomach for that. They don't have the patience for that. What, what caused you to go that direction? Yeah, it's interesting you say that too. It's all, it is a sacrifice too. So you're bringing up, it's uh, you step off the, the kind of income and, and equity value generation, you know, roller coaster and merry-go-round to stop and take more time with people. It's less lucrative, certainly. And some people don't want to do that, right? They just, they say, no, I've got more good earning years ahead of me. And so I don't want to do that. And so that's a little bit, the willingness to do that is one of the character traits. And so, mm -hmm. um, and that goes back to, so answering your question more directly is I like to teach. I've enjoyed the field of teaching and think teaching is valuable and important, but as a young person going into teaching, it's just not a very lucrative career. It's not something where you'll gain financial independence very quickly. So it's very noble, but it's not that way. So when I had the freedom after having entrepreneurial success and being able to, um, you know, have that financial independence, I chose to be more of a teacher and mentor and that fulfilled that desire I had from my early ages. And that's, that trait. So some of the traits that you need to do well at doing that though, because also some people don't have the skills or the characteristics needed to do that. You have to be, a, be able to be a good teacher to actually teach well. You have to be able to be a good mentor. Mentoring's hard. Mentoring requires time and commitment and really caring and really spending time with people and not just, you know, flash in the pan, superficial mentoring, but real mentoring, getting down in the trenches and helping them. Um, you know, some people believe that mentoring is only about um, teaching them how to discover their own mistakes and foibles. And there's some truth to that, that helping people learn how to discover things on their own is really important. But mentoring is also it sometimes being able to tell a person that their idea really sucks and it's really a train wreck waiting to happen. And because you don't, you know, it's just like a child, if they're going to put their hand on the burner, you don't let them put their hand on the burner so they learn that burners can hurt you. You mm -hmm. stop them from burning their hands, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing in mentoring. There's times where you have to say you're doing a red light activity and you need to be stopped now for your own good. And other times where you let them discover on their own. So there's that, that kind of ability to mentor is important. And then um, you have to have a desire uh, to, and a willingness to sacrifice, you know, just being the entrepreneur going forward and making your own money or high income. It's just all those traits come to play. We talk about that a lot, actually, in my circle of mentors and people that have given time the same way I have that, you know, it's hard to find somebody who has been there, done that and has all the experience and skills, mm. likes to teach and likes to mentor. Like, for instance, you enjoy that. I've seen that in you. You like to teach and mentor. Yeah, and not I everybody do. does. No, it's, um, you know, the, the thing I that I'm most impressed about what you do, and I've observed this in you, John, over the years that we've known each other, is that 
it's such a time consuming activity to mentor. It's almost like you're a doctor, a physician who's always on call. Mm -hmm. uh, because when these young entrepreneurs or old entrepreneurs are working, in, you know, late at night in their garage or on their kitchen at their kitchen table, and they're troubled by something, if you're the first person they think of, you've got to be available on the other end of that line. So there are tremendous sacrifices uh, that come in what you do. And you've talked about some of those. One that I'm interested in, in hearing more about is, I know that you have a very, as best you can, you have a balanced life. You have a, a great family, um, you have a supportive wife, and you support her. Can you talk a little bit about the career choices you've made and how, how family factors into that? And, um, and in your case, how a spousal relationship has factored into your decision making? Yeah, that was actually a big part of taking that directional change in my life. Uh, I was married in 1983, and my wife is incredible. Uh, and she and I went on to have four children and about every two years and the very busy household and I worked constantly. So after I finished my collegiate career, I started building up a company in Seattle and over about a dozen years became a leader in that industry. And I worked 80 hour weeks and I was gone a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and then I parlayed that experience into being that was a Yellow Pages company when, uh, in 1984, which was should we, should we explain to some of our listeners what Yellow Pages are? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yellow Pages, uh, the, the uh, printed uh, uh, Google search. How's that? Yeah. And, uh, and so the industry was huge at the time. In 1984, the federal government broke up AT&T, the largest publisher of Yellow Pages and the old Ma Bell company with Alexander Graham Bell. And it broke it into uh, seven, different, eight different companies. And that led to a lot of opportunity for entrepreneurs. That's perfect timing for me coming out of school in 1985. And the Yellow Pages industry was just rife with opportunity. And so I went into that industry. And then I parlayed that print industry uh, publishing industry experience into being the first ever online yellow pages. So uh, that happened in 1995 and that caught the dot-com emergence perfectly and a company uh, that I, my fledgling online yellow page company uh, was sold to um, a new company started by some Microsoft people that had learned about me. And I became like number four at that company called Infospace two or three years later, went public in 98. Hmm. And uh, from that entire period of around 14, 15 years, I never took a vacation, worked incessantly. And then we had enough financial independence to never have to work again. And uh, my wife, sat me down and said, it's payback time. <laughs> and that was a really interesting moment. And so we decided that uh, we would do that. And it was really fascinating. Six months into that of me being the dad on all the field trips, uh, of me be meeting my sons after school, BYU, my alma mater university, called me up and said they'd like me to be a professor of entrepreneurship. Mm. And I said, well, I don't have a PhD. They said, you don't need one. You can be a professional faculty member. And it turned out I enjoy, I tested it for a semester flying down from Seattle and enjoyed it, moved my whole family down to Utah and, and decided to have 
you know, work a few years like nobody else is willing to do so that you can live the rest of your life like nobody else or like many people can't do. Mm -hmm. And so that's, I got off the money-making train of income and, and then just kind of just staying at that same level where I was at then and spent, have spent now the last 18 years and uh, very important years with my kids. My kids were 16, 14, 12, and 10 when I made that change. And uh, it's just been wonderful. All my adult children live within 15 minutes of me. I have seven grandchildren all within 15 minutes of me. And we get together frequently, love each other and have great relationships. And it's really paid off. I got, like I said, I got to coach my daughter's basketball team for seven straight years and just took control of my schedule and time. And my wife has really enjoyed it. It was just, that's a really big moment. Um, earlier when I was working those eight hour work weeks though, she also taught me things like, for instance, she said, John, you have to be home from six to 8 PM every day. So we never, I, for the first few years, I was violating that. And then mm. I learned that uh, um, if, if I was home from six to eight, I could have dinner, help get the kids down for bed and then go back to work till one or whatever in the morning and that kind of life. So I learned a lot of things for my wife. My uh, one thing we learned also is that the, the spouses tend to have a built-in marriage manual. And <laughs> if you listen to them, it helps. So that's been our relationship. I hope that answers your question. Yeah, it really does. I, you know, I, I love what you said about, um, I, I'm willing to work like no one else will so I can have a lifestyle like very few people have. Right. And, and you may have had that, that mentality may just, you could have been born with it. You had that work ethic, that drive. I don't know, but uh, I find a lot of young entrepreneurs have a difficult time uh, finding someone if they, if they're, if they're dating or if they're, mm. if they want to get married, finding someone who has that same attitude about it, that same, um, you know, outlook. <clears throat> so I'm wondering, uh, did you and your wife just, were you aligned from day one on this venture that you're going to, this yeah, path? That's interesting to bring up. We, we talk about that. So, and also let me clarify before I answer that specifically is, you know, because if you don't have the attitude, and one of my mentors one time told me that work a few years, like no one else is willing to do so that you, can live the rest of your life like no one else can. What that is meaning is that the craziness of doing being an entrepreneur, it's meant to be a finite time period. If it was to go on till you're 65 years old or older and work like that, that's workaholism. Hmm. That's a workaholic. That's not good for relationships and family. And so if you say, hey, for these seven years, we're going to work like that. Hmm. And, and we have a plan and a strategy behind it. So we're going to have to make sacrifices. We'll be a little bit like a car with an over or under inflated wheel sometimes and won't be perfect in some other areas of life. Like I might not be able to be a coach. Like my two sons, I never was able to coach their sports. I did hmm. have two daughters or younger. And we made that sacrifice as a family. And my wife knew the sacrifices and we did that. And then we had a time where that was over and we said, now we're going to enjoy the fruits of what we have the freedom to do. And so that's just how we structured that. And so that is important to understand that if it was meant to be for life, that would be a real problem. That's not how it's meant to be. And that's, that's our, our belief. <laughs> Now, um, my wife, and it's interesting, she comes from a family of te school teachers and bankers. And so you, they're, all the rest of them, uh, or a lot of them, are conservative by nature in terms of that and an eight-to-five job and work for a big company. And it ends up, though, my wife 
completely along for the ride. There's been about three defining moments in my career where I kind of put everything on the line. The first time I did it, I went to my wife and I said, Susan, if this doesn't work out, we're going back to a one bedroom apartment, particle board bookshelves and a nine inch black and white TV. Mm. And she goes, Oh, fine. Go ahead. Take your chance. Uh, I loved you just as much then as I do now. And I'll love you just as much afterwards, you know, and it'll be fun building it back up again. Don't worry about it. Wow. <laughs> and so, Boy. and, and, and uh, that gave, I go, wow. So that gave me the freedom to take chances and risks that others might not take. And we all know risk and reward go hand in hand as long as you know you're not a crazy wild gambler and you're a measured risk taker, right? So, Well, it's, you know, <clears throat> you're one of the lucky ones, John. You and yeah. Susan have a partnership that, that's, that's well matched and you're aligned. And, you know, I feel for a lot of entrepreneurs who um, may don't have that. Yeah, they just don't have that. And Can I tell you a story about one? Yeah, it'd be, it'd be interesting. I won't name names. But one time I mentored uh, a, a great entrepreneur, a very a, a born entrepreneur, uh, a trained entrepreneur. He he had to be an entrepreneur to be happy in life. So I one time invested a significant amount of money and helped him raise seven hundred and sixteen thousand dollars for this company. Um, it was a great idea. The company was doing well, and uh, one time. Uh, he invited, he and his wife invited my wife and I out. I was chairman of the board after leading the investment round. Mm. Went to a restaurant, the Melting Pot, which now I don't go to because of this experience. But <laughs> we, go to the rest, we go to the restaurant and uh, he goes to the restroom and his wife lays into me about his salary. And says, we can't survive on the salary that you investors have been capped at. And we have three children and need more money. And I told her that, well, you know, we investors put in $716,000 and we have it capped at $84,000 for a reason. He's, he was making 78 and he brought himself up to 84 where it's capped. But it's not just me. There's other investors. And uh, that's in the documents of the investment. And uh, the company's still early and needs the capital going back into building the company. And we, and I'm not sure we can do that and pull it off. And, and he was gone a long time. It took like five to seven minutes of her talking to me like this. Mm -hmm. You heard of my wife. And my wife was kind of blown away by it. And then he comes back from the restroom and uh, he doesn't say anything. She doesn't say anything. And we finished the dinner. A month later, he calls me back and says, yeah, my wife is making me quit. Oh. He's the founder, CEO. Mm. And she says, I need to be making 120, 130,000. And the last month talking to everybody, I just, that's not going to be happening here. And she makes him take a job at one of the most conservative institutions in our area mm. and sit at a cubicle. Mm. Um, but the funny thing is I did help him get a job at a great tech company, became their number one sales guy. Mm. Um, but he, uh, she just said he had to have a job with benefits and all these things. So we went on that company went on by the way, to make all the investors five X. Oh boy. Investment. And, um, and it was just a great company and he lost out. He sold out all of his shares, which was a huge chunk for a very small amount of money when he left. 
And, uh, and he called me up three years after all of this and told me they got divorced. Oh, what a shame. Yeah. And he said, John, I have to be an entrepreneur. It's really <laughs> interesting. So that's the extreme on the other side, isn't it? And, and to this day, to this day, he is happier after that situation. And he has got multiple companies and multiple things he's been successful with. It's just really interesting. Well, at the same time, um, <clears throat> I think you would agree that entrepreneurship is not for everybody, right? No. And, uh, as, and, and one has to make a decision. What's more important for me now and in the long term? Is it to pursue this dream I have and yeah. to, 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 to bring this product to market or to you know, have a, a happy marriage? And, yeah. and it's a partnership of the spouse. So a lot of times I mentor people, I say, you need to go talk to your spouse about this now right now mm. and have a real talk if you're all in and have, you know, try to prevent that situation. I just told that story on, but there are people, men and women I meet that just, and I think I'm one of them. I cannot work for the man. I cannot work in a large organization. I'm not happy if I am just a cog in a massive machine. I need to be an entrepreneur in control of my destiny more and have the feeling of building and growing every day. And I like the days when I walk in and I'm not sure exactly what's going to happen. And I've got to <laughs> be an entrepreneur and handle what happens. You know, I like that. That's, it, it's a different lifestyle. And so I could see if I were saddled the same way this fellow I told the story about with and found out, cause that could have easily happened to me because most of us don't, while we're courting our spouses, aren't telling them, are you in for this ride? Right. <laughs> right. It's not one of the questions we typically review. Yeah. Like, Tell me about your parents and where'd you go to school? And uh, do you mind if I am an entrepreneur? Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> let me ask you about the advice on entrepreneurship. Um, is there, is there bad advice that you've heard entrepreneurs get over the years that whether from, from well-intentioned relatives or from professors or someone else, if you or heard of, or even investors. Yeah. Yeah. What, what are some examples of some bad advice in your the, mind that entrepreneurs sometimes get? The worst advice of all, and it's rampant is no advice at all. And let me tell you what I mean. It's very, very often and it starts at the idea stage that, um, so two aspects of this. So let's take the mom test, first of all, if you've heard of that book, it's a legendary mm. book to read about making sure you don't get caught in this. But I had a young man meet me and come into my office and he, he says, okay, I've got the greatest idea. And he tells me his idea and I'm very good and have spent time evaluating thousands upon thousands of ideas. So I'm pretty good at it, have my procedures and I do it mentally very fast and I can teach people how to do it in a spreadsheet and all that. And that's part of my training. But uh, he told me his idea and I go, that is probably the single worst idea I've heard in my entire years <laughs> of mentoring. And oh, he, he went white in his face and he goes, what do you mean? I go, well, hold on. Let me tell you, here's the five reasons why this is such a bad idea. One, two, three, four, five. And I told him, he goes, I can't believe it. Everybody around me tells me what a great idea it is. And I go, well, who are those people? He goes, well, my mother, my best Ooh. friend, da, 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 da. And I go, well, they're not, they, first of all, they may not have the qualifications to assess this idea. And, you know, your mother telling you is not unbiased feedback. 
Mm. And, and he, and so we decided he was going to go out and get real good feedback for the next three days from people he doesn't know. Mm. And he comes back three days later and goes, man, you were right. That my idea sucks, doesn't it? And I go, yeah, it does. <laughs> and, and uh, he uh, says, I need to hang around you more. Mm. And I go, well, funny you say that I need a TA for this new class I'm starting. Uh, like to be my TA. He becomes my TA. He meets my son. They co-found Dev Mountain together and sell it three years later for 20 million. (laughs) And, and, and that, that's one thing is bad advice like that is all over the place, just at the idea stage. Now the problem with investors that I'm known a little bit of being blunt and it's with kindness. I hope what happens is I'll set up meetings of entrepreneurs meeting with investors and the entrepreneur come back and go, man, I had a great meeting. This is, I know they're going to invest within 30 days. I'm going to get money from that. They loved it. And I set up the meeting sometimes to make sure they get some good critical feedback. And I call up the investor and I go, man, this entrepreneur is so jazzed. They had a meeting with you and think you're going to invest within 30 days. You loved it. And they go, no, I hated it. Oh, and I go, what? And they go, yeah, it's a terrible idea. And I go, well, that's not how the entrepreneur left the lunch meeting. They thought you loved it and that you were going to invest. And I go, and they go, well, and here's the common refrain I get back. John, I'm not in the job of discouraging entrepreneurs. Mm. I'm not going to discourage entrepreneurs. Mm. And I say back to them, well, are you in the job of misleading an entrepreneur down the primrose path and then squandering their time and money on an idea you know is terrible? Hmm. I agree with you. It's a bad idea. And I've told them that. And they were going to you to get some more advice and feedback. And I think that investors and people that are mentoring have to tell people when they can back it up with the reasoning that their ideas are terrible. Now, Hmm. I have to realize most business ideas are terrible. Very few of them make good business opportunities and very few good business opportunities actually get to the finish line. So um, it's like there's a book called The New Business Road Test by John Mullins, which is the definitive work on this topic. And in the foreword to his book, he wrote the book because he says 90% of all the failure could be eliminated by people just not starting companies based on bad ideas that we could have tested as an idea before we even thought about a company and Mm -hmm. dismissed it based just sometimes even on secondary research, not even primary research. Hmm. Anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to get too into that, but. No, that's fascinating because uh, it's absolutely right that, you know, you want to be encouraging to someone, right? Especially if you see that they've got good instincts and, uh, at the same time, here, here's one of the problems I've had, John. Tell me what you think about this. I've always had a problem, and forgive me if I'm stepping on your toes because I don't know how you feel about this, but when people say to young entrepreneurs especially, follow your passion. And the reason why I have a problem with that is because sometimes what you're passionate about is not necessarily a good business idea. It, it, that's in the same genre, right? Yeah, my passion is, you know, knitting sweaters well (laughs) yeah right or my passion is playing basketball but i i'm still that's not going to make me taller yeah right i'm still going to be five six (laughs) so and and, and so so exactly that just leads to the same thing you've got to measure it and measure the business idea to see how great of a bit 
there for every I believe every million business ideas, only one percent or ten thousand of them are going to be a business opportunity. And then inside those ten thousand business opportunities, there's going to be some poor ones, some mediocre ones some good ones and some great ones. The only ones worthy of us taking our time, the most precious commodity we have, and our treasure, our personal savings and resources, and working on them and maybe even quitting a job to pursue it is a great business opportunity. So you mm -hmm. need a system. And in my Startup Ignition Bootcamp, I have a system for teaching people how to filter those ideas down so that you're only working on great business opportunities. And then you have to run through the lean startup process to make sure that you can form a business model that extracts value, that creates value, hmm. captures value, and delivers value. And that's a really strong refining process. Now, people that spend a lot of time on ideation and an idea evaluation know when they hear an idea they can quickly put it into this has possibility uh, that's not so good and that really sucks okay yeah. and that's really important and th this is where a lot of the people that I've delivered that blunt news to and done it in a kind way have come back years later or just a little bit later and they've really thanked me for being honest and frank with them and they start seeing how we have an ecosystem in the venture world that sometimes does not give this kind of critical feedback um, it's I and I put it just like the kid putting a hot hand on a, or a hand on a hot stove or you see two trains and they're on a collision course Aren't you going to be the one that goes and switches the track so they don't hit each other? Or are you going to be the one that grabs the hand away from the burner? I mean, that's what you have to do to first-time entrepreneurs or people that haven't had as much experience. I certainly wish people would have done that to me and a lot of the decisions I've made early in my career. Mm. And we can't be there for everything. They're going to make enough mistakes and enough terrible outcomes, even with all the mentoring they get left to their own devices to discover all their mistakes just by going through them is not what a mentor is there for is not just to let them have a train wreck. Yeah. And, you know, that, that's not what you're there for. Right. Yeah. So anyway, well, yeah, John, in this, um, in this economy that we find ourselves and I say this economy, um, you and I are taping this on a, on a particular Thursday. Um, when it when we do put this out, you know, I don't think the economy is going to be much different than what we see today. We're in the middle of a COVID crisis. Uh, is this the time for entrepreneurs to uh, to kind of uh, contract and, and pull themselves into corporate America, or is this a time for entrepreneurs to exercise those those tendencies that they feel that they've got running through their veins? Yeah, I can't cite a bunch of sources on this, but anecdotally and my readings over the few decades, is I think most of the research shows that this is an excellent time to um, start something and be in the validation phase and the building phase, keeping it lean and mean. And then when the economy, as it always does, cycles back up, then you thrive. It's the same thing with a company right now that was doing really well and then this thing hit in February, those that, make sure they stay lean, but keep their marketing up, keep their brand presence up and all that, and make sure they 
by the time during this correction and down and when the economy is more down, they then thrive when they come back. The ones that cut too deeply can get hurt and the ones that don't cut enough can get hurt because their burn rate doesn't go down. So that's right. existing companies. I think starting a company right now, taking three to six months to truly validate your business model and positioning it and then you know starting to build the product and the infrastructure keeping it very lean taking six nine twelve months to do that the things you should do anyway and the things that in a good time you might prematurely scale and rush it too much this is a great time to set the table so that you can enjoy the feast when the economy comes back does that make sense absolutely so what i'm hearing you say is though everyone needs to make a paycheck right you got to eat you got to pay your rent uh, this is a time to be methodic. Mm -hmm. um, the, the market's not asking anyone to rush, right? Unless you're developing a vaccine right now. Right. Uh, the market is allowing you to be thoughtful and methodic. And as you talk about validation, using this time to validate. Um, so that's really interesting advice. Yeah, and I'm a big believer in lean startup. Lean startup doctrine is true. I proved it. And I've had experience mm. now for about 12 years of seeing it work. I've also participated in read massive longitudinal studies. Lean startup works. Okay. So lean startup doctrine is there's a validation phase, a build phase, and a growth phase to businesses. So the validation phase, when you are contacting your target customers and users to find out what is the magic business model that they will accept and work with you on, that can be done while you're employed and earning a paycheck. That can be done while you're not putting full time into it. It will take you longer to validate as opposed to being full time at validation. But this is a great time to take your time and validate very thoroughly. And then when the economy starts coming back and it's easier to raise money and capital to fund your runway or to get customers, then you can be devising those systems for sales, onboarding activation and customer service, and then going into a strong growth phase. I think, right now and this is antithetical you know it's kind of like warren buffett when others are selling you're buying when others are buying you're selling and this is the same thing right now a lot of people would be entrenched and say i just got to get a job entrepreneurship doesn't work my company you know da, da. this is a great time to launch something and validate it right now yeah great advice let me uh let me kind of switch topics on you here john okay uh, you were at one time named one of the top 25 entrepreneurship professors in the, in the country. Um, but interestingly, for those, for those listeners and those viewing this who don't know you, um, you left the world of formal education. In fact, one time, as I understand it, you called it broken. And we're seeing that today in that um, I think formal education is reinventing itself by force simply because, you know, people are afraid to go back on a campus and online learning is now um, a necessity, not just a nicety of education. So um, talk to us a little bit about your views of formal education uh, and how do you see it, how do you see it further evolving? What so, does it have to do to be relevant and helpful to the people that, that you mentor? Well, there, there, you know, again, there's been massive studies on this. There's a crisis in higher education um, that has gone back 20 years. There's easy money with 
loans and grants to students that have paid inflated tuitions that go up 7% a year and fund high salaries for professors and PhDs and academics. And that's all been fine and good for that. But it, the disconnect started emerging where the purpose of a college education for most parents and students is to get a job and earn income. Uh, but that's number seven on the professor's list. Number one on the professor's list is to help them think better. Number one on the parents and the students list is to get a great job. So there's a disconnect there. So uh, it turns out that universities in America just, you know, they have a very important purpose, but they were more about teaching how to think like the professors think as opposed to imbuing the skills for the workplace that companies and employers need. Um, there's only about 10 or 12 majors right now that have a positive ROI where you spend money on education and put that degree to work and get a job and you have a positive ROI. There's not many of them. And so then that, a lot of research shows that. So there's some broken systems in, in all of that. So that's why a lot of the boot camps and adult education and online education have emerged where you can go and get quick skills training and get the skills needed by the workplace and what companies and CEOs are wanting in their workers. And so this is important. And um, I think that universities though will never go away and should never go away because I think it's very important that a young person leaves their home and goes and congregates with other peers and gets training uh, that will help them become a productive adult. And that first year or two of leaving home and having, and the thing that happens magically at universities is you bring people together that are smart and have ideas and they start having collisions. And what that means is their hunches of how things should be or what could be better in society and all that. These hunches collide with other hunches and form really strong ideas. So the value actually of a university is not the degreed education as much as it is the collisions that happen at a university. Mm. And that's why Harvard, for instance, is so valuable. Not the degree from Harvard. It's actually the collisions with other Harvard students and professors and those collisions that happen of people and ideas coming together to create more than the sum of the parts. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and, and that's why I think universities are important. But universities do need to focus more on imbuing skills. And it's not just to become a vocational place. It's actually just the skills. For instance, like computer science is broken. Computer science at a university does not teach a person how to become a 10x software engineer that can go help a company build products. They're teaching people esoteric nebulous ways so that they can become a great PhD of algorithmic computer science, which has its place and is very important. But it's not, you know, for instance, at our local university where you and I have helped out at, there's a thousand on any given day, a thousand computer science students. 10% of them just want to be an entrepreneur and start their own software company. They're getting no training on how to start that company, right? Yeah. They are um, being taught nebulous, esoteric, algorithmic things that would really help a large company trying to do a really complex data problem for a very specialized thing. But they are not be, for being able to be the coder the software engineer that can go into a startup company or an emerging company and produce a real product 
Does that yeah. make sense? And that's an exa- That's why there's so many coding boot camps that emerged over the last decade or 15 years is because in 12 weeks, they can produce those kind of coders, at least in a junior developer way. And that's true in a lot of different things. So I know I've spoken a lot and answered this question, but it's an important one. And I even took my entrepreneurial education that I was doing at the university and put it into a boot camp off campus for this specific reason. I was having students in their senior year come to me and they finally got into my 400 level class that changed their lives. They go, you've changed my life, but I've spent the last three years here becoming an accounting major and I hate accounting, but I'm now on the track. I've accepted a job in, at an accounting firm and I hate it but you show me a whole new world that there's this other world that I can be my own entrepreneur, my own boss. I can control my destiny. And that's really a viable option in today's world. I didn't know that. Why don't they give this in the freshman and sophomore years and expose me to this more? So I actually started a class to do that and snuck it in at that university. And we (laughs) started changing things here. But what happens if you think about a university, these great 400 level classes that actually start giving some skills You have to matriculate to the university. You have to get good enough grades in general education courses that far afield from what you want to do in order to get into, for instance, a business school. You have to go through another academic filter and very few get all the way to a 400 level class to get my training. So I said, let's take it off campus and make it available because I was having even these students going, you know, I had to spend three years just to get to you. And now I'm going to do something that my first three years gave me no value for. Hmm. And, and also, um, I have a 32 year old, I know that I told him about what you trained me in this 400 level class, and he wants it, but he can't get into the university. And he's not going to do that. And so what's interesting is now when I do this off campus, I'm helping people from around the world, they fly into Utah, they come from other states, and they sit in the same type of training I was doing at the university, but now they're getting it and it's really helping them. That's a long answer, but there you go. Well, it's, uh, it's worthy of a long answer. Um, so thank you for that. So of course, what, what you're referring to, and which we mentioned at the intro is Startup Ignition, uh, which has been very, very successful in helping entrepreneurs, um, those who've been disenchanted with a formal education, or like you said, they can't, they can't afford it, uh, they, they can't afford the time, uh, or they just wanna make a career move, a career switch. So you've provided a great outlet for that, and uh, we'll make sure that, uh, that people know more about that. So just real quick, I have one more question for you, but before we go to that last question, John, uh, for those who are interested in what you're describing as far as Startup Ignition and how they can get your counsel, your mentorship, where would they go to explore that possibility? Startupignition.com, and their, uh, my email address is jrichards at startupignition.com and I love answering questions from entrepreneurs and we'll give advice and, and all that. So I'm happy to do that. Thank you for asking. Well, yeah, thank you. So my last question, and you know that this is one of my, uh, you know, this, this is my baby and that is the topic of sales. And um, you, you've mentioned it a couple of times, even when we were talking about you and your wife and how you got aligned early on in your marriage and, I'm sure those conversations required a lot of persuasion. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when another entrepreneur wants to talk to a spouse or parents about getting some seed money or, or other you know, friends and family to help invest, there's always sales going on from, from the moment you get the idea. 
just if you could just share with, with those who are listening and watching, how has sales really shaped your career? If could you have done what you did throughout your career and what you do today without developing the skill of selling? At the most fundamental level, sales is vital and important. And actually, I was a sales leader. I actually came out of my university experience very technical and uh, and that served me well for a year or two. And then I realized the real place business happens in is sales. Hmm. And I switched to being a sales leader more than a technical leader. So, um, which was interesting. And uh, I, at one time had 40 to 60 sales representatives under me at leading a sales effort and uh, learned all about compensation commission plans and sales motivation and how sales works and handling objectives and led that for a number of years. Um, and even as I became a CEO and doing the CEO role that I learned that the CEO's number one function they should always stay close to is sales. And so mm-hmm. absolutely 100% sales, everything. And also in all the people I've mentored over the years, um, it's not until they figured out sales that things really took off. I tell entrepreneurs on the Richter scale of difficulty, finding your tech co-founder is like a three or four because that really stymies a lot of people. It's the number one problem I usually hear about, but I say, wait till you have to find your all-star VP of sales or the person who's really going to make sales go in your company. That's going to be an eight or nine or 10 on the Richter scale. And you're going to be at a point where you don't want to pay that salary or those commissions and you're going to be too cheap and frugal and you're going to really hurt your company. I have a lot of people I mentor where they go, John, sales just aren't happening. And I go, well, yeah, you're hiring a guy that uh, he's happy with a $35,000 base salary and pittance of commissions. And that's the kind of salesperson you're hiring. And, and I'm telling you right here, right now, that person that just told you they want a 90,000 or $110,000 base and they want to make another hundred thousand commissions. That's exactly who you need to hire and you need to make that happen. I'll go back and tell you one of my greatest angel investments of all time is Omniture, which became Adobe analytics and brought thousands of employees to our local Utah area. And uh, I was an early investor in Omniture. I don't know if you know that or not. And so Hmm. Omniture, um, struggled in this realm for a number of years. And Josh James, who, and John Pastana, the founders of Omniture, and they finally came to me and told me one day that they cracked the nut and figured it out. They were going through waves of salespeople. They were not getting high powered enough, the right type of salespeople for enterprise software sales. Mm-hmm. And they had very little money left in the bank and they found somebody who wanted to uh, make $125,000 base and earn another 125,000 commissions. And they were used to paying like 40,000, $50,000 base salaries. Okay. They bit the bullet and hired that person. First month, that guy brings in 800,000 in revenue. Wow. Okay. Then they go, is this what we've been doing wrong? They hired three, they hired three more people. And one of those three people, the same type, one of those three people in the next three months landed a $5 million a year, three-year contract, $15 million sale. And the rest is history. And they went on to sell the company for $2 billion. And the inflection point that was most important, even though they're all important to come together, the inflection point was that salesperson coming in and being able to make sales go. 
So John, I have to ask you though, <laughs> if you have a great product, won't it sell itself? <laughs> um, <laughs> the streets of hell are paid with good intentions. How's that? <laughs> It's just say it that way. Um, you know, great products don't always just sell themselves. There's some consumer products that do that way a little bit, right? We know that. But if you're involved in any kind of personal selling, direct sales, or um, enterprise type sales, it's not that way. Yeah. Well, John, uh, this has been a great, a great hour. Thank you for uh, sharing with us a collection of your experiences and your wisdom. Uh, there's so much more we could dive into uh, from everything that you've shared. But once again, if people want to learn more, uh, you've given us your email address, jrichards at startupignition.com. Is that correct? Yes. And, um, and so they can obviously learn more, learn more about you. I'm sure they'll want to connect with you on LinkedIn as well. Um, I know you're active on that. So thank you very much. Uh, you've, you've been a, a great uh, example and mentor to so many people. I hope that continues. I hope you'll do it until they, they put you in the coffin, John, because you've got a lot to give. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you, Rob, and it's been an honor. And also, uh, thanks for doing this and giving back to the ecosystem and for all you've done to also mentor and help us uh, mentees and students. And you've been involved as well. So kudos to you, too. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for being a part of this episode of Game Face Execs. If you found any of it useful or helpful, please rate or like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I always appreciate you referring us to others as well. I'll see you next week. Until then, persuade, influence, inspire.